is, is spreading the good word of Jesus Christ. I would say that the most important thing for college-aged kids to do politically is not shelter themselves into a certain group. Um, it, it's your faith that takes you and leads you into loving someone who has a different pro political perspective. That's fantastic. If it's um, common ground, maybe it's the person sitting next to you at CAM um, that uh, doesn't have the same political perspectives, but they also want to have that biblical foundation in uh, their politics. So we can we can take different interpretations and um, choose to react a certain way, um, but but we can all find find common ground in faith. All right, all right, that was awesome. Nick's a great guy. So if you haven't guessed, we're talking about faith and its intersection with politics today. And I'm here right now to introduce our speaker. And our speaker, there's a lot to, to talk about about this guy. So I'm going to read it so uh, that I don't miss anything. It's Ron Sanders. Ron Sanders is an affiliate assistant professor of Christian ethics at Fuller Theological Seminary, which is a great seminary. It's my alma mater. Uh, his field of research is the intersection of religion and public policy, especially the relationship between the Christian tradition and the democratic tradition in America. He is the author of After the Election, Prophetic Politics in a Post-Secular Age. I've read it. It's an awesome book. And a chapter in Justice and the Way of Jesus. Haven't read it. Probably great. Um, he also served on the staff of Crew for 32 years. He's currently the, that's right, he's currently a religious advisor to the football team at Stanford University and the coordinator for moral and spiritual formation at Crew. And a little bit personal stuff, Ron is married to Bonnie and has two adult children, Zach and Sarah. He graduated from Montana State University uh, with a BS in mathematics, Talbot School of Theology with an MA in philosophy of religion and ethics and Fuller Theological Seminary with a PhD in theology with an emphasis in Christian uh, ethics, and he loves pickleball. So long walks on a beach, probably. And no, but it's really cool. So I used to really quick, personally, I used to lead a ministry at a church, a lot like Blackhawk in the Silicon Valley. And when we would talk about different topics like faith and politics, Ron would actually speak uh, to that ministry uh, to my old ministry. So it's really cool to have Ron back. I trust Ron. I've heard him speak and read his stuff. So you guys are in for a really, I think, engaging and, uh, yeah, really engaging conversation. So with that, can you help me welcome Ron Sanders? We're good now. Okay. Isaac's a man. I was telling these uh, guys uh, that work the table back there, the sound table, my fundamental belief is that Satan lives in audiovisual equipment. And uh, there are certain gifted people, I'm not one of them, but there are certain gifted people that can just cast him out. And Isaac is one of them, obviously. Um, so I was saying that uh, I have a good friend who's a professor here at the business school. We knew each other from Stanford. He was a professor at Stanford while I was on staff with crew at Stanford. And we would play noon ball and we'd play city league basketball together uh, for several years. Our families became friends. Our sons are the same age, went to the same school, played on several uh, early sports teams before they moved out here to teach at uh, the University of Wisconsin here. And so I had breakfast with him when I got into town on um, Monday morning. And he said, well, why are you in Madison? Are you famous now? And I said, I was always famous. Um, no, I just know Michael Napstead. 
and he's famous. And so I get to come out here and to be with you all, which I'm really looking forward to this evening when we talk about uh, faith and politics. Uh, I started my PhD in Christian ethics with a question and a hypothesis. The question came from my experience as a crew staff at Stanford University. Most of my conversations of the last 23 years have been at Stanford with faculty, with students, uh, with people, with athletes, with people who are on campus. And what I found was that when I talked to them about Jesus, they were usually neutral or positive. And then when the conversation turned, turned to Christianity as a religion or Christianity as a religious tradition, uh, their perception was negative. And so I the question that I started off was, where did this gap come from? If Christians are supposed to be followers of Jesus and they have a positive perception of Jesus, then why are they having, uh, why is there this gap between their perception of Christianity as a religion? And this generally reflects the trends in America. People are kind of uh, moving away from religion. It doesn't mean that they're not spiritual, but they're just moving away from their religious structures and kind of trying to piece together their spiritual lives. Um, and so why did we, wh where did this gap come from? And then, of course, uh, how do we bridge this gap, right? How do we bring this gap back together? And my hypothesis was maybe <coughs> we as Christians, our approach to politics contributed to this gap. And especially for me, I identify as an evangelical Christian. Maybe uh, we as evangelicals and the way that we've approached politics um, contributed to this gap. James Hunter, let's see if I can work this. Nope, I can't. Yep, there you go. Wrote the book to change the world. Inside the book, he said this. It would be salutary for the church and the leadership to remain silent for a season until it learns how to engage politics and even talk politics in ways that are non-Nietzschean. What Hunter means when he says that Christians talk about politics in a Nietzschean manner seems to be pointing to something more than politics, right? It includes politics, but it points to something more, and it's how Christians talk and use power. Talk about and use power. But I wasn't necessarily convinced that we needed to stay, stay quiet, like Hunter suggests, until we get it all figured out, because I'm not sure we're going to get it all figured out. And that's okay. This, politics is really important. There's a lot at stake when we talk about legislative issues in our country and in our states. And so uh, I don't know that we need to be quiet, but maybe we need to uh, think about how we have these conversations. So I set out to do my PhD in this field, right, and to do some research on the role of religion in American public policy, especially the relationship between the democratic tradition and the Christian tradition in America. Um, some assumptions as I started, just so you know. I, I take the scriptures and took the scriptures to be authoritative to my life and faith. So they matter in this conversation. I'm one of these evangelicals that I'm, I have a hypothesis about, right? And I consider my own faith to be important and personal to me. So this wasn't just some detached research. We can do that. We can do detached research. But for me, this wasn't something that was detached from my personal life and my faith. 
And because of my own experience at Montana State University, when I was a freshman, is when I came to faith in Christ. I came to faith through some uh, football players. They were interesting. They had a pretty vibrant faith, and they were funny. And that's all it took for me to say yes to Jesus when they explained what it meant to have a relationship with him. I had a fairly religious background, uh, architecturally Christian background. And so uh, it wasn't a difficult uh, thing for me to say yes uh, to Jesus. And I want, and, and Christ transformed my life from that point forward. And so I want people to experience that same transformative uh, process of the good news of the gospel in their life without maybe some of the cultural attachments that get attached to Jesus. So I want people to consider Jesus on his own terms. So that was one of my second assumptions. The third one is I think politics is really important. It shapes the way we think about and live our lives. So not participating when, especially when democracies invite us to participate, does not seem to be an option to me. And then uh, fourth, there are other forms of government that don't invite its citizens to participate in the process of defining the good and how those goods get distributed justly um, to its citizens. Um, so a public theology from a Christian perspective has to be applicable to those forms of government too. It can't just apply to democracy because democracy is never mentioned in the Bible as a governmental structure. No governmental structure, especially in the New Testament. Uh, well, I'll take that back. Governmental structures are mentioned in the Bible. There's no one prescribed in the New Testament as the right one to be. The New Testament just assumes uh, and is written towards Christians who are living in the Roman Empire under the dictatorship of the Roman Emperor, Caesar. And so any, but any public theology has to, uh, or political theology has to be uh, applicable to any form of government, right? And so those were the assumptions that I was working with when I started my research and my PhD program. Okay, so off we go here. Let's just, let's just talk about this. The New Testament does not say very much about government. Honestly, it says a lot about the world, but it doesn't say much about specific styles of government. Um, it just assumes the ubiquity of Rome. And how do you live faithfully to Jesus in the Roman Empire? So we have to, one of the challenges is we have to draw that forward to our own context. Right? We have to draw these ancient documents and what they wrote to the Christians in that time. And we have to bring it forward to our time. And we have to apply it um, in our time. Okay. And so uh, let me just do a little bit of context. Uh, I'm a professor. Right? Uh, a little nerdy. Even though I love sports, um, uh, I'm a little nerdy. Um, and so, you know, a little historical context is going to help this, help frame this, uh, hopefully for you all too. One of the challenges is the first century church that was forming around Jesus begins in the Jewish context. In Jerusalem, right? In and around Israel. A context where the Hebrew people were formed into a nation, Israel, and called to live faithfully to Yahweh. The laws and the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures were given to govern that nation in order to be a witness to who God is through their obedience. 
in Deuteronomy 5, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5 through 8, this is what uh, it says about the laws. See, just as the Lord my God has charged me, I now teach you statutes and ordinances for you to observe in the land that you're about to enter and occupy. You must observe them diligently, for this will show your wisdom and discernment to the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation, is a wise and discerning people. For what other great nation has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is whenever we call to him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this entire law that I'm setting before you today? Without going into too much detail, the uh, surrounding nations of Israel were supposed to watch Israel and see how they interacted according to these laws and this wisdom from the scriptures. And they were to, supposed to be attracted to Yahweh, to God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? And so they were a nation among the nations. Right? And that was uh, how they were live, supposed to live faithfully to God. Well, uh, they had several forms of government. They started off with judges. Right? They didn't quite like that as much because all the other nation had kings. So they asked God for a king. And God said, uh, I'm your king, but I'm going to give you a king. I'm going to give you what you want, uh, even though I'm supposed to be your king. Right? And so then there's some successive kings. There's Saul, and there's David, and there's Solomon, and then uh, a bunch of successive kings, some who are faithful and some who are not faithful. Israel then goes into exile in, uh, uh, they're taken captive by Babylon, and then they're allowed to come back in around 539 into the land that they once occupied. And, uh, but their return was incomplete because still the uh, Persian Empire was over them. Then the Greek, the Greek Empire was over them. And then the Roman Empire was over them. So they never had quite the sovereignty that they once had in their own land, right? And so that's where we pick up the story in the Gospels, is Israel has been in exile. They're back in their land. They're building a second temple. That's why in uh, some of your religious studies classes, it's called Second Temple Judaism, because they're building a second temple. So they're kind of in the land. They kind of have a temple. Um, they have their people marked out by their ethnic and cultural heritage, uh, but they don't have sovereignty over their state yet. And they're, they're trying to navigate what that looks like when they don't have sovereignty over their uh, political environment. And there's four um, reactions to that by people in, um, in Israel at that time. You'll recognize these if you've read the Bible. And then I'll be almost done with the historical context. But it's a very important context because it's really easy for us to read the Hebrew scriptures and to equate us ourselves with Israel. And re remember that Israel was a nation among the nations, right, where the nations would watch them and say, oh, this is what God is like. When Jesus says, go to the nations, right, all authority has been given to me in Matthew 28. And if you're in crew, you know this because we talk about this all the time. Uh, go make disciples of all nations. So when everybody is included, all the nations are included, something switches, Right, And so you have 
You used to have Israel as a nation among the nations. Now you have the church in every nation. That's different. That isn't one nation where everybody's watching. That is a community of people who are being faithful to Jesus that is being a witness to the world, to each and every nation. Okay, and so uh, what you have, though, in the, in the first century is four responses uh, by the Jewish community on what it means to live in this land with the Roman Empire still uh, sovereign over them. And the first one is the Pharisees. That's the first group. They are, hey, if we're faithful to God and faithful to the law, then God will restore us fully into this land. That was their response. And so they were very careful about the law. Then there's kind of the Sadducees and Herodians. I'm kind of mashing those together. And their response was, hey, we're going to cooperate with the Roman government. We're going to try to get all that we can from them in this land, but we're going to cooperate with them. The third response was the Essenes. And the Essenes, would the best picture is kind of like what we know as the Amish today, right? Just withdraw. We're just going to withdraw. We're going to do our thing. The Essenes are the ones that preserve the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And we're just going to kind of live our own life and withdraw from any kind of this action here. And then the fourth group is the Zealots. And the Zealots are, hey, Rome is a hostile occupier, and we're going to take them over. And we'll do it by any means possible, including a revolution, including violence. It's okay. And so we come to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. This is the first kind of indication about, hey, how do we relate to politics? Because Jesus doesn't talk a lot about it in the Gospels. And so uh, the... Um, the, te- the Pharisees and the Herodians come to Jesus and they're going to, te- the Bible says they're going to test him. Never a good idea. Usually comes back on you. Uh, usually uh, when you ask Jesus a question and it's a test, it usually comes back on you with another question and a soul searching like, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I should really stop trying to test Jesus. Um, and, but they never learned that uh, lesson. So Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. I don't have a slide for this one, so just go ahead and enjoy uh, my voice while I'm reading this. I wish I had a better radio voice, but here you go. And if you don't like my voice, then you can just uh, take a nap because I know you all are tired. Um, 13 through 17. He sent to him some, they sent to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to one, no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're just, you know, buttering, up, buttering him up a little bit. And so they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, whose head is this? And whose title? Or in some translations, whose image is this? They answered, the emperor's. Jesus said to them, give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. So this is a little 
fun passage because they're trying to test him. And Jesus just messes with them. Right? He says, okay, you want to have this conversation? You want to trap me? You're trying, to, you're trying to figure out, am I a Herodian and going to cooperate with Rome? Or am I a zealot and going to participate in the revolution to overthrow Rome? And let me just bring you back to a little perspective here. And so he says, ah, whose image is on this coin? Right? It's, it's genius. Uh, and they say, let's see, can we get the, uh, there we go. Here's a denarius. And they say, of course, it's the emperor's image. They pull a coin out of their pockets. I don't know where they had. I don't know if tunics have pockets. I don't have a tunic or what they wore. Um, but they, someone had a coin. Here's the image, right? The emperor's image. But as soon as Jesus said, whose image is on this coin, they're done. Because any good standing Jew who had any knowledge of the Torah, right, would know that in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, it says that God created humankind in his image. In his image, he created them, male and female. And the, they're like, oh, no, we know what's going to happen now. We're all done. So he says, okay, there you go. Give Caesar what's his, this little tiny image that's in your hand. Give God what's his image, your entire self. Right, and he's, I, I love how my pastor puts it, he's right-sizing their perspective. They're trying to trap him, and he's bringing them God's perspective on who they are. Right? Give Caesar this little image. It's okay. But give God your whole self. Now. So, he, you know, he passes this two-party test. Um... When he's right-sizing our perspective, this is what I think this means. So the first principle when we're talking about the role of church in democratic politics is, uh, and really in any political system, is that we are small c citizens in whatever country that we're, uh, we have citizenship in or we're a guest in, right? We're capital C citizens in the kingdom of God. That means that we have a small H hope in what politics can accomplish or government can accomplish. And we have a capital H hope in what God can accomplish. Jesus is putting us in perspective and put po putting politics in perspective. But in order to be a small C citizen, so he's saying you're, being, you're a small C citizen here. You're inside the Roman Empire. They weren't actually citizens of the Roman Empire because they had very strict, um, you know, criteria for citizenship. Paul was a citizen of the Roman Empire, but a lot of people weren't. But what he's saying here is that when you participate, you have to understand, okay, uh, what is the role of this governmental institution? And then how are you involved in it? And what does that mean to be faithful to Jesus in it? And so if we can go, we'll go to Romans chapter 13 because Paul kind of, uh, articulates this a little bit more. Peter does it and basically repeats Paul in 1 Peter chapter 2. But Romans 13 has a little bit more texture, and so we're going to look at that passage. It's, again, a little bit long, and um, so, you know, just whatever you need to do. This can be, this can be a commercial. Um, it can also, you know, just rest a little bit. It's okay. Um, I don't mind if you fall asleep. It just means you're tired. 
Um, so just go ahead, fall asleep. If your person falls asleep next to you and they start snoring, just, you know, elbow them. Say, yeah, you're snoring, right? Um, I always, you know those planetariums? Okay, this is just for free. The planetariums, you know, where you listen to music and look at the stars. Uh, I tell my neighbor, whoever it is, I try to sit between my family, but I always tell them, hey, I'm out. The, time, the first time they turn off the lights, I am out. I fall asleep everywhere. And so just... Just know, my kids started an Instagram account. I think it's Dad Naps One or something. They didn't do very much with it, but they always take pictures of where I'm napping because I can fall asleep anywhere. Okay, Romans 13. That was for free. Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid. For the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. What Paul is saying here is that the institution of government is given by God for the flourishing of all people. Not just Christians. All people. Peter says this similarly in 1 Peter chapter 2. The purpose of the government is to punish wrongdoing and to reward the good. The temptation that we all have as human beings is that the government is, just, or as Christians, is that the government is just the world. So just leave it out there and uh, just let it be. Or we make it everything. We either make it too small or too big. Right? And so we have to have the right perspective on the institution of government. The institution is created by God. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says that all things are created by God and for God, the visible and the invisible. The thrones, dominions, rulers, or powers. And then Ephesians, it, so it's created by God, but it's also an institution that's been corrupted by sin. Ephesians 6, our struggle against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers that set themselves up against God. Okay, the purpose of the government then is established by God and it's twofold. The government is supposed to affirm and reward the good. And then the second thing is that the government is supposed to punish evil. Christian, the, a Christian's role, our role in it, then, is to be subject in it when it is fulfilling God's given purpose. Rewarding the good and punishing the evil. We're supposed to be subject to the government in two ways. And this is why I titled my book, uh, Prophetic Politics in a Post-Secular Age. Really, I titled it uh, just to let everybody know that I had a PhD, because uh, it sounds smart. But uh, 
I use the word prophetic because I think it's really important in our role in the government. So I think this is how we are subject to the government as an institution, is that we prophetically affirm it when it's fulfilling its purpose. So when it's doing its job, promoting the good, uh, rewarding the good, and punishing evil, then we affirm it. We partner with it. We work with it, right? And we're involved in it. The second way that we're subject to the government is we prophetically challenge it nonviolently, creatively, when it has turned its purposes upside down and it's affirming evil and punishing good. That takes a lot of discernment, right? The writers of the New Testament don't say much more than that. They don't really give a specific definition to the good. But as you look in the New Testament, when they use this word, the good, in a public setting, what they mean by that is we have a shared moral understanding, we have shared moral language, and everybody agrees that this is good. Right? If you don't agree that this, whatever this is, is good, then, uh, then you're flying upside down, basically. So an example of this is uh, my wife and I are on staff with crew. We're involved in uh, several projects in anti-trafficking. So one of, the, one of the projects, we were helping to raise some money for an aftercare center. So children are raised, are rescued out of trafficking. They're placed in an aftercare center for their rehabilitation and then uh, for six to nine months. And then they're reintroduced and reintegrated into their community if that's safe for them. And so, uh, you know, we're raising money for this uh, aftercare center. And uh, I tell my atheist friend who I play basketball with, this is why my wife is going to this location. And he said, well, can I give money to that? And I'm like, well, you're giving money to crew, a Christian organization, and you're an atheist. And he's like, I don't care. This is good. He recognizes it as good. We had a Muslim and a Hindu throw us a fundraising party for this project because it was good. This is what the authors of Scripture, when they refer to good, everybody saw that it was good. Right? And they're just like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll give to crew all this one time. Just make sure they don't. Send us anything else. Like, okay, we can do that. Um, so our role, we're subject to the government. Uh, we prophetically affirm it when it's fulfilling its purpose. And we prophetically challenge it when it's not. Um, in, when Israel was in Babylon in exile, they're like, what do we do now? How do we be faithful to God? And Jeremiah says, live. And then he says this in Jeremiah 29. Uh, verses 4 through 7. Seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right? We're supposed to be doing good in the role. So the church's role is different than Israel's role. Right? It's supposed to be a prophetic and prayerful presence in any government that it's in. That we are citizens of or guests in through our participation, our affirmations, and our challenges. We hold the government... To its God-given purpose. That's our role as a church. We have more than that, but that's our role in the political system. We hold the government to its God-given purpose of affirming the good and um, punishing the evil. There are several examples. And then when we do that, we let the chips fall. That might mean consequences for us. 
right? When we might say, hey, that's not good. And you've affirmed it as good and this is not good. And so we challenge them. There may be consequences. So we let the chips fall where they might. Several examples in history. Dietrich Bonhoeffer against the Nazi pogroms. William Wilberforce against transatlantic slavery, right? Trying to hold the government to its God-given purpose. Uh, Andre Trockman, Edward Teese in Les Chambons was uh, one of the villages that was key in the resistance movement in France uh, during World War II. And then Martin Luther King Jr. in uh, the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture of Andre Trockman. You're all familiar with Martin Luther King Jr. So, okay, now let me see what time it is. Okay, we're doing well. Uh, um, everybody doing okay? Everybody, are, are you with me so far? Okay, okay, I just, I just need to, you know, sometimes uh, you're not paying for this. Uh, you know, when, that, when I have class, they, they're paying for it, so they have to be there. And they have to read the books that I tell them to read. You don't have to do that. So, you know, thanks for being with here and uh, being with us. Um, okay, so I want to now, so we've defined what the relationship to government is. I want to return to the question about power because I think this is a really important question. What does it mean to use the power that ha God has given to us in the right way, both politically and non-politically? I titled my book After the Election because what I, if I didn't have an academic subtitle, I wanted to say this is when the real work of the church begins. Because no matter what election results happen, we still have work to do. It doesn't mean the church's work is over. The church's work has just begun. Because the government's going to start shifting and focusing on different things after every election. And we, we need to shift and focus because I'll say why it's important for us to be a part of democracy in a minute. But it's really important for us because democracy as a tradition is a, a thin tradition. It doesn't have the virtues to carry itself forward. Uh, it's kind of set up that way. So it needs a, a, another tradition to complement it. And I'll say why that is in a, just a minute or two. But I want to talk about power. And the first place that I'm going to go is Mark chapter 10, verses uh, 35 through 45. This is the disciples, James and John, recognizing that Jesus is doing something really cool. And so they're like, hey, something's going down here. I want to be a part of it. Can you, like, put us at the left and the right when you come into your kingdom? The places of power and prestige, basically, when you, when you establish your kingdom. They, they see what's happening here, and they're like, yep, okay, we, got a, we just got one question. Can you do this for us? Right? And then the ten other ten disciples get mad at them. And I don't think they get mad at them because they understand everything what's going to happen. They get mad at them because they ask first, basically. That's what, that's what I think. That, I mean, it makes sense to me in this passage. But, um, but they asked Jesus this question. He's like, you're not sure what you're asking uh, here. And so um, here's Mark chapter 10, 42. Um, uh, sorry, it's 36 through. Yeah, uh, it's 35 through um, 45. But I'm going to read. Uh, this passage, this part of the passage. You know that among the Gentiles, so they've asked this question. Um, can I sit at your right and left, the places of power? You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. And their great ones are tyrants over them. Notice over them. 
over them, right? But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be servant of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We take our cue to, uh, from Jesus that how we use our power is in service to others. Not to be over others, but to be in service to others. That's how we use our power. And when, when people hear us in the political conversation, that's not th what they're hearing right now. They're hearing, we know best, we should have the power, and then you, it will be good for you. It's like, take your medicine, kind of, when I was a kid. It'll be good for you, right? Paul echoes this idea in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. It's a very famous passage. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be taken advantage of for himself. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. Paul got the message, right? This is his example of humility. He says, be humble, right? And then he gives the example of Jesus. And then Peter in 1 Peter 3 says, always be doing good. When you are suffering, do good. When people are persecuting, do good. Uh, when people are trying to harm you, do good. Always use your power to do good. And you all have power. We all have some power. Every person has some power. Power is just the effective range of your will. If you can will something to happen, and you can make it happen, you have power. Right? It's just, and some people have more of it than others. And the question is not whether you have power, but what are you going to do with your power? What are you going to do with your power? I started with a quotation from James Hunter that gave words to my hunch about uh, the church's relationship to politics. I want to close with a quotation from Michael Walzer. He's a Jewish political philosopher, and he's commenting on the role of church in politics uh, because this was his dissertation. He uh, teaches at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. Um, and when I read this book, I, when I read this quote in The Revolution of the Saints, I'm like, yes. And I probably have it underlined, quotation mark, everything that you could po highlighted, everything that you could possibly do, because this was it for me. This is who we're supposed to be. And, and this was a Jewish political philosopher describing this. He concluded his book, Revolution of the Saints, by saying this, that the temptation for the church is to always want to be in positions of power so that they could have the last word. And the last word is always the coercive word, right? The last word is the assertion of power. But what he said is this, the saints have what is more interesting. They have the first word. They set the stage of history for the new order. And what Walzer is saying is what Jesus was saying about power. That how we use our power creatively in the world is we're supposed to be coming up with the new ideas. Right? We're supposed to be implementing the ideas and we're supposed to be working towards them um, in a way that uh, does good for everyone. In the uh, 4th century, 5th century, Emperor Julian said this. He was the last pagan emperor uh, before Christendom kind of set in. 
and he was watching the Christians use their power to help people during the plague. And what they did was the plague was ravishing uh, the Roman Empire in some cities, and the Christians were staying in the cities. They were taking care of people. They were giving people proper burials. And uh, they didn't know what was going, the uh, pagans, quote unquote, didn't know what was happening. And the emperor Julian said this. He said, um, the impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, in addition to their own, taking care of their own, support ours. It is shameful that our poor should be wanting our aid. This was his uh, critique of his own priests and prophets of the Roman religion. Okay. I want to say three quick things and then we can do question and answers. Okay. Um, I want to say something specific about democracy. Uh, my book is a snoozer. It's better than ambient. That's what I say. Uh, if, you're, if you have insomnia, just start reading it. You'll fall right asleep. Michael, what he doesn't say is he read the book. What he doesn't say is it took him a year and a half to read it because he kept falling asleep at night. Um, it was just my PhD dissertation. That's how they are. But I think one of the more interesting things of, that I wrote was that democracy needs Christianity. Or at least it needs a complement like Christianity with some of the virtues that we have to support it, to carry it forward. Um, and here's three reasons why. The democratic tradition is based on an ethic of harm. Every person has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness so long as you don't harm any anyone along the way. This is a thin ethic of relationship, right? This is a, I'm, I'll just do my thing. And I won't harm you. This, that's a very thin ethic of relationship. The Christ, Christian tradition has a thick tradition or a thick ethic of love. Jesus says when he's asked the greatest commandment, he says what? Love your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, question. Who's my neighbor? Oh, let me tell you a story about a Samaritan who nobody would have considered uh, their neighbor who was listening to him at that time. Oh, actually, let me tell you a story about your enemies. You're supposed to love them too, right? Jesus continually pushes our moral boundaries outward. That our moral concerns should be further and further outward instead of inward. And this is important in democracy to help um, uh, the well-being of the community. We're supposed to be caring outward. Um, so that's one. Second, the democratic tradition by its very nature, will always marginalize a group of people. That's just the facts of majority rule, right? That's the fact of utilitarian ethics, is that there's going to be a group of people that are minoritized by the majority, right? And they won't get there what they want. They won't get their definition of the good. Uh, the Christian tradition, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats, right? And he says, uh, you know, someone's going to separate you. And he separates them by those who fed the hungry, uh, took care of the sick, gave uh, water to the thirsty, took in the stranger, showed hospitality to the stranger, and clothed the naked and, took, and visited people in prison. And they all like, hey, when did we do this? Uh, when did, what, what, how, why is this? And he said, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. 
Christianity is supposed to be paying attention to people at the margins and drawing them into community. That's how one of the ways that we can participate in democracy. We have our thick ethic of love. We pay attention to the people on the margins. And then finally, the democratic tradition by its very nature invites its citizens, everyone, you're all invited into the conversation about, hey, what's good? What, what about this legislation? How do we distribute these goods to everybody equally, right? Um, how do they get distributed justly? It doesn't have a mechanism to solve moral disagreements except for through power of legislation and politics, right? Through coercion. It coerces you. Once the majority is there, it coerces you into behavior. Um, but the problem is, as societies get more diverse, this becomes more difficult because we don't have sh the same shared moral understanding and we don't have the same shared moral language. And so it's very difficult to uh, solve our disagreements apart from the power of politics, right? And then what we've just said, that uh, Christianity has a different view of power. It's not, hey, I need to get the power so I can be over everybody, so I can legislate uh, what I think is the good. Christianity is like, hey, I have some power. I'm going to get under people and serve them in order that they can flourish. And so uh, Christi Christian morality is not necessarily it's not necessarily supposed to be legislated from the top down. It's supposed to be adopted voluntarily from the bottom up. Okay, uh, this is, I'm going to say this last thing. Uh, this is why you need to be a Christian. And this is why democracies need you to be a Christian. They don't, they, you can be a Republican, you can be a Democrat, you can be an Independent. But those are small C loyalties, right? Those are small L loyalties. You need to be a Christian for democracy to flourish because you need to be prophetically involved in affirming it when it does good and prophetically involved in challenging it when it flips its uh, God-given mandate. And then you need to be creatively using your power for the good of the community. Okay, and famous Forrest Gump's words, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs>